to Iconocast, your field guide to the world of brands. What's new, what's changing, what's provocative, and what's curious? I'm your navigator, Jeanette Hanna. More than 700,000 people live here. More than a million people come here each work day. So it's up to all of us uh, to make sure that we're rethinking, reinvesting, and reimagining all of the wonderful corridors of the District of Columbia. Thank you very much. That was Muriel Bowser, the mayor of Washington, D.C. This Iconocast takes us behind the city's federal facade to get an up-close and personal view of the District of Columbia's journey back from crippling urban blight. And we'll get an insider view from two local champions, people with frontline stories of brand building, community empowerment, and the spicy politics of mumbo sauce. We'll get to that later. There is no arena more complex than branding places. Whether they're neighborhoods, cities, regions, or countries, they all must compete for people and investment. Remember the frenzy that erupted in 2017 when Amazon announced it was looking for a second headquarters? Up for grabs, 50,000 jobs and up to $5 billion in new construction. It's no wonder that over 200 cities from across the U.S., Mexico, and Canada jumped at the opportunity. Crystal City, a neighborhood just across the Potomac from D.C., got a big piece of that prize. Luring Amazon to the region is all part of a dramatic comeback story for the district, because in the mid-1990s, the capital of the U.S. suffered a near-death experience. Rich Bradley was there. He was heading up the downtown D.C. Business Improvement District. A bid, as they're called, is an area where businesses pay a self-imposed tax for local enhancements. Rich describes just how challenging D.C.'s plight was at the time. The downtown bid's sort of initial planning took place in the mid-90s. It was a time in which the city was literally bankrupt. Uh, We had a financial control board. The city had, for the previous five or six years, been hemorrhaging jobs. At that time, 40% of the employment of uh, Washington was uh, government-related. And so when the federal government downsized in the uh, early 90s, it was an outflow of 20,000 jobs, which then affected the office markets, which then affected the city's fiscal ability, sent the city into bankruptcy, and the city then proceeded to shred, shed another 20,000 jobs. So the city was, by 1995, the hollowed out and from an employment point of view, and there needed to be something that would begin to change the, uh, the directions. Downtown was perceived in the mid-90s as a large government office park. There really wasn't much life and vitality to it. While it had the national monuments and tourists came here, they avoided the downtown and in many respects avoided the city. I used to say that before we started the bid, if there was a brand for downtown Washington, the brand was dull, dirty, and dangerous. There was a need for an organization that at least would take on those issues and begin the process of sort of creating a new image, which began to evolve over time. And why was that seen to be something that that the city couldn't do on its own? In in large part because the city itself was 
in turmoil. And there wasn't an ability to kind of direct services the way a bid can do to a particular area. Before we launched the bid in uh, 1997, we did some surveys, perceptual surveys. And we, what we discovered was uh, essentially that I think, if I remember correctly, that 75% of the people in the region thought the area was not safe. About 50% didn't think it was clean. Uh, and almost unilaterally, people thought there wasn't anything to do. So we had a serious image issue. Downtown was not the only area that was struggling in the mid-90s. In the southeast quadrant of D.C., you'll find the neighborhood called Congress Heights. Monica Ray heads up the local Community Training and Development Corporation, and she paints a vivid picture of local conditions at the time. Congress Heights was probably as far removed from the federal government as you could be and in the same city. You had rundown neighborhoods, vacant houses, blight everywhere. Schools were in a really poor shape then, and we were in a city that was broke. And as you probably know, when when the city is broke, the underserved communities are in far worse shape. And that was the scenario. Our downtowns were in horrible shape and Congress Heights was at the bottom of that barrel. The neighborhood was known or the ward that we live in was known for all of the chronic negatives. High unemployment, low home ownership, high high school dropouts, high single parent households, high crime. So all of the things that say undesirable, we were known for. Congress Heights has been a predominantly African-American neighborhood since it was founded in 1890. So it's also had to grapple with the facts of racism for generations. When the zeitgeist of a place is relentlessly negative, cynicism can cripple ambition, especially in communities that have suffered trauma at the hands of people in power. Monica talks about the importance of directly addressing the community's sense of impotence. You'll hear her refer to the Tuskegee affair. That was when the U.S. government subjected African-American servicemen to a deadly medical experiment that went on for over 40 years. We have been lied to, cheated, misled for at least 30 years. I mean, there are still people who are very, very distrustful to give the government. There are people who believe that there are outright conspiracies to erase who we are. We come from a culture that we know that conspiracies do exist, right? I mean, we now know when when the Tuskegee experiment was going on, nobody would have believed that the government would intentionally inject healthy males with the disease, but it was real. And that those same thoughts and, and horrors follow us to this day. So there are people who still believe that you, we're going to wake up one morning and we'll all be somewhere else. And it's by design. And what we try to empower our residents to believe is that even if those things are true, we have the collective power to change it. Economic decline, urban blight, deep mistrust. Those are tough brand building conditions to start with. But sometimes big changes begin with simple things like a name. Congress Heights has a visibility problem. You'll be hard-pressed to find it on the official Visit DC website, for example. But substantial redevelopment is already underway in the area. 
Residents were concerned that the common ploy of marketing an old community under a new name might be in the cards. So Monica's team decided to meet that possibility head on. Probably about seven years ago was the first kind of inkling where a new neighborhood um, came about in Washington, D.C. called Noma. And no one had ever heard of Noma. And we realized that it was a neighborhood that we all knew that was called Trinidad or Ivy City. But it was, for the most part, gone. And neighbors started to get together to talk about what would happen if Congress Heights changed? Well, what would they name it? Or what would they call us? And a friend of mine said, we should not call us anything. We should make sure that Congress Heights lives on. The economic environment in the city is such that people are really afraid of what's going to happen and where their place will be in the city. And no one had ever had the gall to say, we're going to maintain our neighborhood. It had, development had always happened to us. So for the first time, we said it's okay to say it's not going to happen. We're going to be a part of this. So they sprang into action, actively lobbying with the city as well as local developers to retain the name Congress Heights on all new projects in the area. The real importance of that identity came to a head at a local community meeting. It's been funny how it's evolved. The deputy mayor stood up and said, this project is going to catalyze Congress Heights. And many people in the audience had never heard that statement together. And one of the developers got up and said, "Uh, we're doing the development for the people of St. Elizabeth's East. And the residents immediately said, Congress Heights. But they had never felt okay to have pride in it before. Now they see Congress Heights on trash cans and they see Congress Heights on jackets and on hats. And that pride that has always existed, but just didn't have a vehicle to articulate it. Now it's okay to tell people you are in Congress Heights. You can't not say Congress Heights. The first seeds of change always come from the ability to think differently about what comes next. While Monica and her team were working to change the trajectory of Congress Heights, Rich Bradley and his colleagues were reimagining the future of downtown D.C. In any major urban center, the health of a city's core is a key indicator of its overall vitality. We recognized early on that a brand is a way to promise an experience. We were very mindful of the work that Pine and Gilmore did in their book, The Experience Economy. We realized that what bids could begin to do was to affect the quality of the experience. And in light of the fact that their brand was a promising experience, we wanted to be certain we could deliver experience before we promised it. And we saw an awful lot of people who went out and would have, in fact, taglines, you know, live, work, and play. Well, we, there were many people living downtown. Uh, there were a lot of people working, but they left early, and there wasn't much playing going on. So we didn't, you know, we said, let's not try that. So we, we waited really until the time came when we could, we knew there was enough going on that we could now really explore in depth what were the particularities of the experience we would create in Washington different than other places so that, again, part of the brand is to be to distinguish ourselves from other, other areas. So it was the idea we wanted to be able to promise what we could deliver, we wanted to promise the experience, and we wanted to be able to indicate what was unique and distinct about it. One of the models which people have in, in bid world is something akin to the Maslow hierarchy of being. Maslow was a psychologist, social psychologist, and he, I think, wisely noted that you had to meet basic needs 
before you could meet emotional needs, before you could meet spiritual needs. And it was a kind of hierarchy of that. Well, the, the same thing was true as we looked at sort of places. You had to meet the basic needs and then you could sort of make it a little bit attractive so people would go, oh, that's nice. And then you had to work a lot harder where they would say, wow, I really want to be there. The work we've been doing in Congress Heights, which is a low-income community, the, the brand effort over there, which was really to uh, find out what people felt about their community, their pride in the community, even though it was called a low-income community, radiated in a way that they could identify and felt it was theirs. Igniting community pride can be a very potent force. Through a series of community workshops, residents in Congress Heights rallied around an empowering theme that they felt could define their neighborhood. Today, you'll see it everywhere, even stenciled on sidewalks. Soul of the City. When Soul of the City became accomplishment for the first time, there were older African-American people who said it sounds too black, or it sounds like you're trying to say they were only African-American. And those very same people now understand that soul is not about color. It's, it's about a feeling. It's about that pride and that sense of who we are. It's, it's been a leap, but I don't know that I've ever seen a brand be accepted as readily as this one has as quickly. Why do you think that is? It's interesting. I think cool paraphernalia helps. Yes. Right? They, they've enjoyed seeing it on hats or on jackets, so it, it looks good. But I think trying to find something to embrace. Is it okay for me to be proud of my neighborhood, despite the fact that we still have some of those very same high negative rankings? And sometimes we feel like because we live in a certain place and somebody tells us that we have high crime or high drug abuse, that we also feel that we can't be proud, that there's nothing to be proud of. And what Congress Heights has mastered is the ability to say, we have these things that still need to be fixed, but we also have these really great things as well. And I think no one has ever trained us to be proud and critical of, our, of the same situation. I was accosted a couple nights ago. This lady walks up to me, she says, I've been here 46 years, and I've never heard this neighborhood called Soul of the City before. And why do you call it that? I said, because we are. And she said, you are what? I said, we are the soul of the city. I said, so where do you live? She says, I live on Pennsylvania Avenue and 4th Street or something. I said, that's not Congress Heights. You live on Capitol Hill. That's not the soul of the city. The soul of the city is here. And she says, the only thing I know is you guys are very, very nice. And you welcome me at the Metro and you walk me all the way to the door. But I've never heard it called soul of the city. I said, but now you have. And we're going to preserve our, the soul of our city by continuing to be just that, the soul of the city. And she's okay, I guess. But what about the crime? And that's the argument that we have to have all the time. How do we juxtapose this kind of utopian place that we all love and wouldn't leave with the that very public perception about who we are? We talk about family. We talk about small business and entrepreneurship. When we talk about community that collectively raises our families and advocates for ourselves, I believe those things are what makes us all the city. It's, it's not retail that we like, but it's not having a great mall. It's not having a Quentin Center. It's really about the people. And I think we have the most accurate depiction of what people in this city are right here. Now, if tapping hometown pride is part of the secret sauce of place branding, in D.C., that sauce has a name mumbo sauce. And as Monica explains, it packs a surprising political punch. There was a big argument online around mumbo sauce. Our, our mayor had said mumbo sauce is not quintessentially D.C. 
and she has been raked over the coals about this mumbo sauce. And oh, she also said that she had she didn't eat it until she was a grown person. The argument has become one about class and connection. Mumbo sauce, if you don't know what it is, is a kind of sweet and spicy barbecue-like sauce that most places to get is, is, a, is a Chinese carryout. They actually started in Chicago, but DC made it theirs. And it's, you know, it fries, fried chicken wings with mumbo sauce, salt and pepper, ketchup on the side has become the thing that everybody orders. Unless you had the great privilege of visiting a neighborhood like ours, you may not have ever had mumbo sauce. It became a huge argument, like impeachable offense for the mayor to say mumbo sauce is not D.C. But I say that to say that our arguments sometimes are about class and our place in history. And neighborhoods feel that they are somehow at risk because as people come in who don't eat mumbo sauce, they're different somehow. And somehow their existence means my non-existence. So we we talk about a lot about how do we become that melting pot so that people can come to our neighborhood and be and know who we are and be proud of the same things we are. There is lots of research to suggest that the stories people share about their place, positive or negative, play a huge part in determining their future. Stories of great momentum and transformation, as Abraham Lincoln might say, draw on the better angels of our nature. Rich Bradley talks about the power of changing the narrative for downtown D.C. I think as we began to explore what the essence was of downtown, we realized that there were some very significant things going on, that Washington was a city of meaning. When I say meaning is that people came there with a purpose. It could be a political purpose, but we had many nonprofits here. I mean, Washington has a history of sort of being a place people came to if they wanted to make big change. Uh, and I think early on, we sort of kiddingly said, we rated ourselves relative to New York. If you wanted to make money, go to New York. If you wanted to make change, you came to Washington. As we began to uncover who we were, we began to realize that was sort of in our DNA. But we also realized that we were playing uh, a major role globally as well as nationally. And so it was the first time, you know, for a city that was bankrupt and had a negative perception about itself, we began to say, oh, the work that's going on here is important work. So we're, we're a city of purpose. We're a city of, uh, that's meaningful. So we ha- and in fact, we identified early on that this was a city that was focused on transformation. Now, it's very hard to take that and cast that into a brand, but it really gave us a sense of a trajectory we were on uh, and that we could really begin to sort of identify. And we also began to realize that what we were offering here was a... Um, a, a remarkable urban experience. And the discovery of something that was a, we felt had a authenticity, but was also still aspirational. So we, we had, if you like, brand uh, examples, exa- exemplifiers that we could point to that would speak to this uh, remarkable urban experience. So that was in the offering, but we had lots more we could do. And so if we thought about our streetscape, how could we up that? that? Could we begin to sort of work to really expand dramatically the kind of cafe presence? So we had the cafe society that other great cities had. Could we look at our public transit system and figure out how we link it better so we put a circulator there? Just we begin to add things to the mix to make it better 
to really now build the brand. You've worked in Congress Heights. You've worked yeah. in DuPont Circle mm-hmm. here. You've worked mm-hmm. in um, Crystal City, those areas. At that level, how do you start to craft a remarkable experience? First of all, I think we learned early on, uh, in part with your assistance, that we could talk about brands in the, in the context of a family of brands. And so not everything had to be the same. And I often use the example of Honda motor cars, which I have to own one. And at the upper end, you have an Acura, then you have a Civic, and then you have a, you have a Pilot. You have a whole bunch of different kinds of brands that do different kinds of things. They're held together by a, sort of a, some common threads and common values. So, you know, some of the neighborhoods wouldn't be remarkable in that sense, but the people who lived here were engaged in the same kind of transformation, had the same aspirations. So we could sort of build on that but we could define something else different for each one of them. So the idea was, I think, to think of each of our neighborhoods as having something that, again, d- distinguished them in the context of this larger family of brands under the larger rubric of what was Washington, D.C. In Congress Heights, Monica Ray employs storytelling as a way to celebrate community resilience and, equally important, help bridge generational divides. So our challenge has been how do we get young people and old people in the same conversation? We started a speaker series, and we call it the Legend Series. And in each series, it happens quarterly, we invite four to six 70-year-olds who've been in the neighborhood. And they come together just to talk about what the neighborhood has looked like and how it's changed. The reason why we did it was we realized that we had, we've lost several 70 or 80-year-olds over the past few years. And we realized that the stories that they told were gone now. You know, their history kind of went with them because nobody had ever sat down to try to remember it. Unless you were lucky enough to hang out with one of them for a few hours, you probably didn't get to hear the stories. So we started trying to find ways to archive that history. So we, we brought our first set in, video, moderated conversation. that just talked about major themes along the spectrum of change, who the characters were, who the players were, and those epic battles. We have young people now, and they feel like their elders have somehow failed them. And I I didn't understand where that was coming from until a friend of mine said to me that if you were talking about in the 80s, we were at the height of our crack epidemic. So many of the 50-year-olds now were victims of the crack epidemic that decimated the city. And they were parents of the 20-year-olds now. And those 20, 25-year-olds, many of whom have not had a, a responsible adult in their life, they have a different level of respect for their elders than we did. When I was a kid, every grown person was highly responsible, doing the right thing, and could and could spank you if needed. These kids grew up in an environment that was very different. They saw their mothers and aunts and uncles um, in very irresponsible positions. So they have a different perspective. So it's going to be interesting to see how the culture changes. Mm-hmm. We grew up looking up to our elders and thinking they were heroes. And now you have young people who don't feel that way. So a Legends program was a really important bridging some of that. Absolutely. To highlight those similarities. It's easy to believe that because you're 80 and I'm 50, that we think differently. But if we never have a conversation... We never get to figure out that we're not that different at all. So D.C.'s come a long way from its woes of the mid-90s. It's now ranked in the top 10 of best places to live in America. But its success breeds a whole new set of challenges around equity. 
we, in some respects, one can argue, too successful. And it's very expensive to live here. and makes it difficult for people who maybe who are, how do I say, not an upper-income uh, family, but middle-income family, middle-class family, or even a low-income family to be sustained in the city. So there's an, I think for my purposes, I think the next thing is to think about uh, how do we focus on that? Because many of us, I think, who got into the business of focus on downtown were really about the, uh, cared about the regeneration of cities. So we didn't mean just the downtown. But we knew the downtown could lead that transformation. So now I think the attention has to be in light of that. Can we take the same tools and attention that we gave to building a place, making a place, and now thinking about how do we manage that place and how do we brand that place? But can we do this in such a way that also ensures that it's done in an inclusive fashion, or at least the benefits of what we do in one area can be shared with another area? And so we can sustain the economy, but also sustain this the social viability of what I think we feel is this sort of universal need to have a variety of people who live in cities and benefit from them. Maybe we're paying enough attention to social equity issues, or I think many of us were assuming that that was the role of government. Um, I, I knew here in Washington, we tracked uh, the, what we call the net fiscal benefit. That was the difference between the economy we generated in the downtown and the taxes it generated and the cost of services that we used to support the downtown. And the net fiscal benefit of our area and the Golden Triangle next to us is now about $1.3 billion of a city's overall budget of $13 billion. But there's a, a net benefit that gets shared. And some of us really feel that it has had an ability for this city to invest in universal health care. We did this a decade ago. You know, so before Obamacare, the district did this. Additionally, uh, we have a universal preschool. We have a affordable housing program that on a per capita basis is the best in the country. Uh, so we're, do we're doing those things to address a, a population that was uh, very much in need. So, but we assumed the government was doing that and doing it well enough. That's simply not turning out to be enough. Mobilizing a community to take charge of its destiny and its brand is tough, demanding work. It's certainly not for the faint of heart. Ultimately, what's the real value of a brand for a place? And how do you measure success? I think it has most meaning when it's not about a sales pitch, when it's not a slogan, and when it's not simply a, a brand mark that kind of gives some panache to something. The brand really kind of grows out of a narrative of story. It's a way of compressing in the way that, in terms of language, the way that metaphor uh, is a way to compress meaning. I think what brand does is to do that. It also, uh, I think a brand helps communicate in an emotional way. So it gets at other elements of a, of a story. So it, it's shorthand, but it, it ought to be shorthand that connects back to a longer story or to a, another purpose. And that's when it's a value. Our aspirations change all the time. I think the great thing about this process has been that we've been open to whatever it looked like today. There were times over the past four or five years where you could have gone out on the avenue and everybody would have said the same thing. We need affordable housing. As we've evolved and had more conversations, we're beginning to understand that the affordable housing doesn't come without the market rate housing or the amenities don't come without displacing some of our small businesses or some of our residences. And that delicate dance has been the key to just being open and transparent and honest. Um, when we go out to the community, we make a point of saying, this is what we're trying. We don't have a magic dust. We don't have a magic wand. 
And there are some ups and downs to almost anything that could be proposed. The, the key for us is how do we learn to advocate for ourselves and what we believe will be our best interest at the time. I probably will tend to judge our success on very small things. Last year, for instance, we received what's called a champion award from the Alice Ferguson Foundation, which was about litter and removing trash. We collected uh, about 6,000 pounds of trash over two cleanups. Um, so I judge our success on things like how we change the physical environment around us. Have we figured out a way to reduce litter? Have we figured out a way to reduce crime? Are our streets clean? Are our lights well lit and our trees pruned is a big indicator for me. The second one is going to look like how we continue to stimulate our retail corridors. We have probably one of the lowest vacancy rates citywide on any commercial corridor. Our challenge has been the right retail mix. Despite the fact that we have no vacant properties, we don't have a sit-down restaurant or we don't have a coffee shop yet. So how can we attract those things that truly create that walkable environment for our neighbors? Third, I probably have four. Third is, is probably how people continue to use the brand and recognize it for what it is. And fourth, and probably most important of those four, if we have not figured out a way to harvest the wealth that will come from development in a way that helps us preserve our community, we failed. I think most important, you need to have a credible messenger. You need to have someone of the community that people trust and that person needs to be incredibly comfortable with being honest, even when it hurts. Often we find someone who we think is charismatic to tell the masses what great things are coming. But you need someone who can be honest and talk about those things in a way that people can believe it. And that person needs to understand that it's going to be you're going to be shot at and, and hit and kicked along the way. But the, the mission doesn't change. And to, and to just be credible at every turn. That's probably the toughest part of, of what we do is being able to stay the course. We really are sort of thinking about the concept of place in very different ways. And to the extent to which place has become, I think, a global phenomenon, it's interesting to note that in the most recent Habitat, there, there was a, a declaration of place. There was always a declaration of the right of human settlement, a place for people to be housed. Everybody had a right. That was a human right. Now there's a human right to place. Having some space, you can gather collectively, be secure, can transact some kind of business or social encounter or cultural encounter is central to all human experience. So there's a, now a, a right to place and we need to attend to it because it sort of opens the door to say, you don't, it's, this isn't work that's just done by business improvement districts or main streets or certain development companies. It's, it's really a, an exercise that everybody's engaged in and should be and that public has a responsibility to assist that. The Romans had a term for the spirit of a place they called it genius loci. And paying attention to that local genius seems more vital than ever, especially for a world that's becoming urbanized at a breathtaking pace. 1.5 million people move to cities every week. So as DC's mayor says, it's up to all of us to find ways to reimagine how to make our places more inclusive, resilient, and sustainable. That's all for this edition of Iconocast. Many thanks to our guests, Rich Bradley and Monica Ray. And we wouldn't be able to put the show together at all without our coach and technical advisor, Allison Moss. 
We'd love to hear from you about this episode or suggestions of themes we should explore in the future. I'm Jeanette Hanna. Thanks for listening.